Our sermon texts for this morning, there are three. The first comes from John chapter 5, verse 26. The second from Acts 17, 24 through 25. And the third, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. They are on the screen. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Acts 17, 24 through 25. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This time I'd like to call our children forward. Who made you? God. Yeah, who made God? In the verses that we just read, we learn that no one made God. God is not a being that is made. He just is. What is God? Well, God is a spirit, which means he doesn't have a body like a man. Can you see God? Since God doesn't have a body like us, we cannot see him. But that doesn't mean that we don't believe he's real. You can't see the wind, can you? But you can see trees shake, you can see leaves fly by its power, you can see snow blow around in your yard or across the streets because of the wind. You know the wind is real because you see its effects. You see the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the rivers, the fields, and the trees in this world in which we live. These things cannot make themselves just like you cannot make yourself. So we know that God is real because we see what he has made. In the verses that we just read, we also learn that God is, I'm going to teach you a new word. God is infinite. Can you say that with me? Infinite. Yeah. That means that he fills every place. You might ask where God is, but the right question would be, where is he not? The Bible says that if we climb up to heaven, he's there. If we dig down into hell, he is there. So we should always remember that God sees everything you do. He hears everything you say. He knows everything you think. Day or night, God is always everywhere we are. Nothing can be hidden from God. God is eternal. That means that God never had a beginning, and He will never have an end. That's pretty hard to think about, isn't it? With a little work, we can imagine living forever. I mean, Life just going on and on and on and on without ending. But when we say that God is eternal, we're saying something much bigger than that. We're saying that God didn't have a beginning either. We will all grow old and die. We will all be buried. The heaven and the earth will end. But God will always be what he is forever. What is eternity? It's the lifetime of God. And God's lifetime has no beginning and no end. And just like we all have to live somewhere on earth while we're here, we all have to live somewhere after we die. And if we die in our sins, we will have God as our enemy forever. But if we love and serve him, we will have him as our father and friend forever and ever.
The verses that we read also teach us that God is unchangeable. Why do we change? We change because things happen that we didn't know were going to happen. We change because we learned something that we didn't know before. God says, I am the Lord and I change not. God does not change because nothing ever happens that he doesn't know about. He planned everything that will ever happen and God is never surprised. And God never learns anything. Why do you learn? Well, you learn because you don't know everything yet. You know your ABCs now. You know how to count up to 100. You can read some simple words and sentences. But a few short years ago, you could barely say a few words. Everyone here, even your great-grandma and great-grandpa, are learning new things every day. But God never learns anything new because he knows all things. Now, I know many times you've been scolded when you've done something wrong, and maybe you felt very sad about it, and you thought, I don't want to disobey Dad and Mom, and I, I want to do what God wants. And you find yourself a few minutes later not obeying again, because you are constantly changing. God does not change. He knows the beginning from the end, and the end from the beginning. And he knows his own plans, and his plans are best, and so he doesn't ever need to change them. God is eternal, which means he lives forever. No beginning and no end. And he is infinite, which means that everything about him has no beginning or end. God is powerful. He can do all things. God is wise. He knows all things. And because he is powerful, he can do all the wise things that he plans. Remember when I asked you, who made you? And you said, God. Then when I asked who made God, you couldn't answer. Well, the answer is, no one made God because being made is only for creatures. God is not a creature. He is the creator. He is the one who makes. In our passage, Jesus says that God has life in himself. If it weren't for God, you wouldn't exist. You would never have been born. If it weren't for God, there would be no sun, moon, stars, or earth. There would be nothing. Everything that is was made by God, but God just is. He lives because he is God. This is hard to think about, and it's supposed to be, because God is great. If, we were, if God were easy to understand, he wouldn't be God. Now we're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind. The power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The subject of our sermon this morning is the doctrine of the aseity of God. Aseity, what does that mean? The term aseity comes from the Latin phrase a-se, which means from himself or by himself. It's a short way of saying that God is whatever he is by, by his own self and of his own self. God's aseity means that he is self-existent. 
With respect to his being, it means that he's sufficient to himself. He is independent of anything outside himself. His existence is from himself. So aseity could be called God's from himselfness. In John chapter 5, Jesus said that, that God's life is of himself. God is self-existence, self-existent. God's aseity with respect to time is his eternality. He is the Lord of time. He exists above and apart from time, albeit he is free to enter time and accomplish his sovereign purposes in it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, asks, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That answer is beautifully simple and yet astoundingly complex. And so I have put a small layout of the answer on the back of the bulletin with the sermon outline for this morning. Now, the Bible teaches God's aseity by telling us that he doesn't need anything outside himself. Our passage in Acts chapter 17 tells us that God is not worshipped as if he needed anything from us. God's aseity marks the great distinction between the creator and the creature. And this great distinction means that God is free to enter his creation and act as he pleases since none of his actions or relations with his creatures adds or diminishes anything from himself. When he saves us from sin, he does so as a sheer gift of grace. He does not need to, nor does he benefit from it. God's aseity with respect to time is his eternality. This means that he is the Lord of time. As its creator, he stands above time. He can freely enter it to do his will, but he transcends time because A, he has no beginning or end. B, he does not change. C, he is equally conscious of what is to us past present, and future. And D, he is not limited by the passing of time with regard to what he can accomplish. Aseity is the first of the divine attributes. All of God's attributes derive from it. At heart, the doctrine of aseity is that God is not in any way dependent on anything outside himself. And this is what is conveyed by the Bible's use of the word Lord. By calling God Lord, The Bible is affirming God's sovereign rule over all creation and therefore his independence from it. So the points of our sermon this morning, as you can see on the back of your bulletin, are number one, God is independent from his creation. Secondly, God is eternal. And thirdly, we'll add a pastoral application of how the doctrine of God's aseity comforts the believer. God is independent from his creation. And he is independent from his creation because God is a necessary being. When we say a necessary being, we're saying that it is impossible that he should not be. In technical theological terms, we call things either necessary or contingent. A contingent thing is something that might not have existed. I, for instance, am a contingent being. Nothing in the universe depends upon me for its existence. And it's easy to think of a world without me in it. I'm sure there's some people who think that would be a better world. To their chagrin, here I am, and 
Therefore, something besides me must explain my existence. A necessary being is one that cannot not exist. God is the only necessary being. He exists, and nothing but his own being explains his existence. And in fact, God's very name declares his aseity. The Bible uses many names for God that reveal his independence. Names that no creature could bear, like the Almighty, the Most High, the Lord of Hosts. But the name of God that most vividly declares his aseity is the name Jehovah. I am, or I am that I am. God doesn't merely say this of himself. He says that this is his name. And in naming himself, I am, God asserts that he rests on no one for his being. In calling himself, I am, he is telling us that he has need of nothing. He is through and of himself. Through and of himself, he is. The name Jehovah, of course, has great significance for our election, our salvation, our redemption, our preservation, and our trust in his promises. But it's important to realize that in all that God does with regard to our salvation, he is revealing revealing to us himself as he is. He is I am in himself, first of all, and then he is I am in our salvation. Furthermore, the aseity of God teaches us that God does not change. The proper term is immutability, which means that God cannot, God does not change. It's not that change is too hard for God, but that the very notion of change is contrary to his nature. Because he is perfect, change implies a transition from one state to another, and that's either an improvement or a decline. I am the Lord, I change not. He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now we should be struck with wonder and awe at the infinitely uncrossable chasm between God the Creator and us, His creatures. Not only do we depend on God for air, food, strength, etc. But there's something much more basic and fundamental. We depend on Him for our moment-by-moment existence. God has His ground of being in Himself. We don't. As Paul says in Acts 17, 28, in Him we move and live and have our being. And in Hebrews 1, 3, Paul tells us that Jesus upholds all things by the word of His power. That means that every single thing in existence was not merely created by God, but that its continued existence is an act of God's power. Everything that exists depends upon God for its existence, and only God is self-existent. God is independent. We are always dependent, and our dependence is upon Him. But think of how proud we can be, how we often live as if we are the masters of our own destinies. We behave very often like the rich fool in Luke 12 who said, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. How often do we really follow the words of Scripture which tell us that we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. The Bible teaches God's aseity when it declares him to be the owner 
of all things. God is called the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything because everything is His creation. Now, everything we possess, we possess by divine gift so that when we give something to God, we are only giving back to Him what is already His, which He has gifted to us. So when we give to God, we're not indebting Him to us. When God is obligated by promises, they are self-imposed promises. They are not necessary for Him to make. Nothing in Him or in His creation places Him under any obligation to do anything for everyone. If He didn't owe it to us to create us in the first place, He certainly isn't under obligation to do anything else. God is not on the hook to provide anything for anyone. If he shows a man grace, it is purely of his own good pleasure. Nothing any man does or can do will ever place God under obligation. I mean, let's take an example. Grace. Is God obligated to give his grace to everyone? Well, let's argue from the lesser to the greater. Does God give everyone perfect eyesight, high intelligence, good health, three square meals a day at comfortable house? He does as He wills in the armies of heaven. He does all His holy will. And since it is undeniable that He does not dispense temporal gifts to everyone equally, we can easily say that neither does He dispense with eternal gifts to everyone equally. That does not make Him partial. That does not make Him unfair. That does not make Him unjust. And the reason why is because He is not under obligation. Now, let's ask what happens if we take the position of the opponents of the Reformed faith and say that God's grace is universal. Well, let's ask then, does God know or does He not know beforehand how everyone would respond to His grace? In other words, does God know who will accept it and who will reject it? Now, there's only two possible answers, yes or no. If you say no, you're an atheist, regardless of what you call yourself. A God who is not omniscient is no God at all. If you answer yes, God unmistakably knows who will accept His grace and who will reject it, then you've got a bigger problem. Your system entails a very ugly consequence. And that ugly consequence is that God, fully aware that this person will undoubtedly and willfully reject His grace, thrusts His grace on Him anyway, thus amplifying His guilt a billion times. Where's the love in that? That's unmitigated cruelty. Offering grace and atonement to someone you know will only spurn it is intentionally aggravating their guilt. If this imaginary God had any love at all, he wouldn't aggravate the sinfulness of the sinners he knows will not repent and believe. In other words, if the Arminian deity has any love at all, he'd be the God of the Bible. Now suppose that someone objects that offering grace and atonement to the reprobate it's just a way to take away man's excuse for his sinfulness. Okay, let's assume for a moment that that's true. Okay, it takes away man's excuses. But then this makes God knowingly make a man more inexcusable because he loves that man so much. That's ridiculous. What's the point? Well, the point is God is not obligated to his creatures. Our second point, God is eternal. God's eternality is his aseity in relation to time. God's aseity is expressed in the name I am that I am. God is eternally self-existent. 
He always was. He will always be. God's aseity tells us that He is independent, unchanging, and eternal. The name I Am proclaims God's eternality. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, You are God. God did not have a beginning. He has always been. Last week we quoted Deuteronomy 32 verse 40 where God says, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. God's eternality is one of the most prominently attested of God's attributes in all of Scripture. In Job 36, 26 we read, God is great and we do not know Him, nor can the number of His years be discovered. Psalm 46, 5 reads, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 93, 2, You are from everlasting. Psalm 102, verse 27, Your years will have no end. And then, of course, one of our texts for this morning, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Now all of this means that God's relation to time is not at all like ours. Time is His creation and He is as sovereign over time as He is over you and me. Time is a dimension or a realm in which we live and move, but God stands outside and above it. For us, time is a constant stream of consecutive moments. Once one passes, it's gone forever. We have no access to anything but the present. If we fail to achieve our plans in the present, there's nothing we can do about it. We cannot go back. We cannot turn back time. Almost daily, we express our frustration in the words, I didn't have enough time. But since God is self-existent, He always has enough time to accomplish His purposes. Now, I almost didn't say that because, truth be told, God doesn't have time at all. Time is His creation and He does not live in it, nor is He subject to it. Of course, I understand that this is difficult to grasp, but it's supposed to be. If we could understand God's essence, He wouldn't be God. About the year 524, the philosopher-theologian Boethius wrote a work in which he defined God's relation to time as an eternal present. I've always found that to be a helpful explanation. Instead of thinking of God as present in time, Boethius says, time is present before God. It's like when we define God's omnipresence. It's not exactly accurate to say that God is everywhere because God transcends space. He transcends His creation. Everywhere is present to Him. Since time is His creation, every event that occurs within it is always present before Him. Think of the ways that Scripture affirms God, that God transcends time. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God does not have a beginning or end. He exists before the beginning of the created world. God's existence is not simply without beginning and without end. It's beyond time itself. Now for inquiring minds, I think this rather beautifully explains how God's omniscience includes past, present, and future. He is the one who made them what they are. He sees all events laid out before Him. Imagine that you were looking down on a parade from a window high atop a skyscraper. You could see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. Now, where this, this analogy breaks down is that 
You could see it all at once, but it would be outside your reach. In God's case, all of it is within his reach, and that's why time is never a problem to God. I think we've probably all had an experience where we were praying for something, and when it dawned on us, you know what, it's too late now for God to answer this prayer, he did answer it, and it was clear that his timing was perfect. And this is more than that we just simply misjudged the situation, though that's certainly a possibility. It's that God isn't affected by time. I'm going to put this into, I don't know, crude terms, and I hope it doesn't confuse anyone. If you needed something a month ago, for you it's too late. A month ago is gone. You don't have access to a minute ago, let alone a month ago. But all time is present to God. He does have access to a month ago. He could provide for your need a month ago today. Do you follow what I'm saying? He has as much access to a month ago as he has to right now. And that's why time creates no difficulty to him. He can hear all the prayers of his people, even if they're all praying at the same time. Because he is not inside time, and he can attend to them one by one. Time never presents a problem to God. Think, for instance, of the parents of John the Baptist. When the Bible introduces them, we read that they had no children because Elizabeth was old, was barren, and that they were both, quote, well advanced in years. When John's father, Zacharias, is serving in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. I can assure you, Zacharias and Elizabeth quit praying for a child when Elizabeth became menopausal. And yet Gabriel says, Your prayer is heard. Time is not a limit to God. He is sovereign over it. He rules over time. And that leads us to our third point, that aseity, God's aseity, comforts the believer. And I want to point out for you some ways in which the doctrine of God's aseity is a comfort to His children. First of all, we learn that God never reacts. Nothing catches God by surprise. All of His acts are done with eternal deliberation. Acts 15.18 says, Known unto God are all His ways from the beginning of the world. Now, nearly all of our acts are actually reactions. We intend to do something, then the unexpected happens, unanticipated, and we're forced to react and to change. Adaptability is considered a sign of a smart person. Companies are always on the lookout for someone who can think on his feet and roll with the punches. Now, why would that be a desirable skill, except for the fact that we don't control anything? Now, since God is Lord, that is, He owns and controls all things by virtue of having created all things, He does not need to think on His feet. Nothing unexpected happens which forces Him into adopting plan B. Now, doesn't this comfort your heart? A great disappointment has come along. A tragedy has struck. But He will make Whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage, for he is able to do it, being almighty God and willing, being a faithful father. Nothing comes to pass by chance. Nothing just happens. I can think of no doctrine that should comfort a believer's heart more than God's aseity, that he overrules all things because he is Lord of all things. 
In prosperity, we can be thankful. In adversity, we can be patient because we know they both come from the hand of the Lord. As Job said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we we receive good at the hand of the Lord, and shall we not receive evil? Secondly, we learn that God is never indebted to his creatures. We should think about that again for a minute. God's greatness is seen by the fact that his creatures cannot put him under obligation. In Romans chapter 11, Paul writes, Oh, the depths, both of the riches, uh, of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Now it is true that we glorify God or dishonor God by our lives, but this is not an adding to or diminishing of his essential glory. This simply refers to how aligned or misaligned our lives are with his will. In the book of Job we read, if you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? God's essential glory is not enhanced by our worship or holiness, nor is it diminished by our disobedience. The nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing, yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. God doesn't need us or our praises to be glorious. We are not gathered here to give him anything he doesn't already possess. Rather, we are gathered to acknowledge that he is worthy of everything that he possesses. Aseity, of course, is another way of saying that God is infinite. You know, if God were finite, that means limited. What limits him? Nothing is eternal but himself. And therefore, nothing can can limit him. He is, as we sang earlier, the Ancient of Days. Thoughts of God's aseity should inspire us to worship. He is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Now, in reference to ourselves, eternity is completely different than God's eternity. The eternity of the saints is a derived eternity. It's a gift of God. Our eternity or our eternal life, will still be a life of sustained life, sustained at every second by the word of his power. And it has a beginning. We think of our life in heaven as a never-ending succession of moments. Experience after consecutive, experience without end. But God's life will forever be what it is now, over, above, and outside of time. Even in the external state, God's existence will be an eternal present. An experience of yours the first day in heaven and an experience of yours a million years later will both be equally present and accessible to God. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. We are all traveling to eternity. Some of us are on its very brink. Just this last week, our beloved Ruby Batterman crossed the Jordan and in the words of George Eliot, joined the choir invisible. 
The world's existence does not depend in any way on, on any of us. We depend on God. It would be wise to always keep that in mind. One of our greatest sins is that we think of God after we think of ourselves, which means that we define Him according to our desires. In his masterpiece, The Bondage of the Will, Martin Luther tells his opponent Erasmus, Your God is too human. Psalm 50, verse 21 reads, You thought that I was altogether like you. We are prone to irreverent thoughts of God. In other words, we think of God as being dependent on others. We think of God as being weak and moral, as being influenced by men's acts, or being obligated to men. But God is not at all like us. He is the King eternal. And when all our powers cease, He will still be the King of kings. Meditating on God's aseity will surely make us have high and adoring thoughts of God. Think of how casually we often speak and think of God. Why do the sentiments expressed in the book of Psalms, for instance, seem so foreign to us? In the world of the Old Testament saints like David, God was the very center of existence and everything else was viewed as inconsequential compared to him. Nothing was thought of without direct reference to God. To many people who claim to know and love God, this seems like a foreign world. We define everything by cause and effect, action and reaction, laws of nature, whereas the saints in the Bible defined everything in relation to God. Now, since nothing has existence of itself but God, surely this is the right way to view the world. It kills many professing Christians to put the world aside for a couple hours on Sunday to worship God. Is this not perhaps because our God is too human? In the book of Revelation, we read of unnamed, awesome and holy creatures. They're simply called the four and twenty elders. These, the greatest, most awesome, most holy creatures in existence, fall down before God and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns at His feet. Serious thoughts about God and His aseity and eternality in the words of Thomas Watson, will make us adore where we cannot fathom.